Good morning. My name is Greg Moore. Our scripture reading this morning is Acts 11, 19 through 26. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and trusted and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. Those are some, um, well, for the last year we've had some what we call walk-up videos, introduction videos, and I like them, but they're a little troublesome to me, and I'll tell you why. They seem so epic. And then I get up and have to say something. Seriously, okay? So maybe we won't use it next week. It just makes me feel very small. Um, but we are in a series concerning who we are, the DNA of this church in particular. Uh, and I mentioned last week that while I was gone for a month, I visited five different churches. I also mentioned uh, near the end that I came back and reflecting on all of that, said to my la wife, I like us. I didn't mean that in a, sorry, in a critical way or a way that's like, they're not good enough. I like who we are. We're the best. I just like who we are. It's kind of like you're away with people and you come back home and you say, I'm glad to be home. I like home. That's how I felt when I returned. It was a delightful time, as I mentioned last week, but if I had lived in the first century and done the same thing or had the ability to do the same thing, I'm quite certain I would have wanted to visit the church at Antioch because it sounds like a fascinating place. I'm not going to delve into all the things with Paul and Barnabas and, and that sort of thing. I'm just going to frame Antioch for you in the next couple of moments. Some things you could identify in the church according to the passage. Other things are things we know from studying history. So what was Antioch like? Maybe where was it first? It was in the northern province, Roman province of Syria. And in modern-day mapping, it's just slightly north of the Syrian border that now exists. 
and on the very south side of the Turkish border. So just north of modern-day Syria is where Antioch is. It was also, you wouldn't know this unless you looked it up, it was also the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and there was Antioch in that order. Sort of like New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Those are the three largest cities in our nation. Antioch was like Chicago, a third in terms of population. It was also a very interesting city. Um, it was interesting in its diversity because it had a huge number of people from all kinds of places. The religious diversity there was rather remarkable. Um, you might have called it secular, but in a way it wasn't. It was ironically very religious in terms of its seculosity. Some of the things that were represented there in Antioch were religions dedicated to Artemis, to Apollo, to Zeus. There were Syrian cults of Baal that were well known along the Palestinian re region and go as far back as stories in the Old Testament. There was also a very active cult of sexuality integrated into worship and sexual prostitution for the purpose of worship. It was a city that was intellectually curious, um, a hotbed for ideas, a place where if you were to do ministry there, you better be okay with a lot of challenging ideas, which seems to be the very reason that Paul was selected for this job. Paul was a highly educated apostle, among the apostles perhaps far and away the most educated and intellectual. He seemed the perfect match for going to Antioch. So when they heard what was happening in Antioch, and by the way, what was happening in Antioch was the church was expanding dramatically. And I don't know if you ever noticed in that passage or other places in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there are no leaders that are named at Antioch. No major church leaders. In Jerusalem, it was Peter. Paul was the diaspora. James was in Jerusalem. There, there were major leaders in other places. In Antioch, it seems like the church just grew right out of the ground. And there's no telling how many church leaders were there. But when they realized what was happening, that the Gentile population in the Roman Empire was coming to faith in Christ, they said, we need to send somebody up there. First of all, to investigate, that was Barnabas. And second, to teach, and that was Barnabas and Paul. I mentioned the religious diversity in that city. There also was a lot of what we typically call nowadays international diversity. Um, it was actually called the Queen of the East for many, many years, Antioch. The people groups that were there included people from Persia, people from India, people from China, of course, people from all over the Roman Empire that were Greek-Roman, and a very large Jewish population. So into that place, 
comes Paul. There's also something interesting about this town that was a religious cross-section of the world. It seems like the church at Antioch, for whatever reason, was able to break down barriers. For those of you who know your New Testament well, you'll remember episodes in the New Testament in which Paul is instructing the church, and he's instructing the church about how to get along. And he's telling one church after another, don't create divisions or don't allow divisions to be created. Whether it's Galatians or Corinthians, it seems like, though we don't have a letter to Antioch, it seems like that was not an issue. What we do not hear about is conflict between the Jewish population and the Christian population in Antioch. It seems as though they figured out a way to break down barriers and focus on the essentials. Why? I have a suspicion. I think the reason is because they were focused on receiving, equipping, and sending. Now you say, Bob, that's just, that's just, shameless of you to use receiving, equipping, and sending <laughs> and apply it to Antioch. I, I don't feel shameful about it at all. <laughs> I feel like it was there, and I feel like at some level it's here. It's always been something we've embraced at ECC, that we're a receiving, equipping, and sending community. And if we are, and if we focus on that, perhaps it's less likely that divisions emerge because we're focused on the main thing. So those three words are the outline for my sermon, receiving and equipping and sending. But the first word, receiving, I want to add a word to it, two words, receiving. Put in your outline if you're writing, hyphen, come and see. Receiving. Come and see. It seems like to me the church at Antioch, and in large part the church in the book of Acts scattered all over the Roman Empire, reflected the receiving model of Jesus Christ. Receiving model, come and see. Remember Nathan and Philip and the early disciples? They would invite people, and they'd say, come and see. Come and see this man, Jesus. Come and listen to his words. Or listen to his teachings. And you know what the teachings of Jesus did not include? The teachings of Jesus did not include a way to reform the government. He virtually ignored it. The teachings of Jesus did not reinforce insider-outsider language, us and them. Or to put it another way, Jesus was routinely accused of inviting people in that shouldn't be in the inner circle. He was a friend of sinners and publicans and tax collectors. It's as though when he saw the outsider, 
he said to them, come and see. He also didn't say, and some would dispute this, if you want to dispute with me, that's fine. I'm okay with that. He, he also didn't say, conform, and then I'll invite you to follow. He didn't really put it that way. He said, come and see. Come and hear would be another way of putting it. So what was Jesus doing? What was the early church doing? They had this underlying assumption, it seems to me. They assumed that every human being was made for relationship with God. And they looked at humanity and saw people alienated from God. And they said, I recognize your longings. And I want you to come with us. Come and see. Come and hear. I want to receive you. You know, um, in our world, there are a few things that are more acute right now than loneliness or a lack of belonging. And more than anything else, the church has an opportunity to capture that and say, come be with us. Just come and see. Maybe you want to belong. Maybe the broken relationships in your life can be healed in this place. Maybe your dislocation and your confusion can be resolved in this community. Come and see. You know, there's really only one way for a church to be effective at that kind of ministry. No, that's always simplistic, isn't it? There's always more than one way for anything, but let me focus on this way. In order to be effective at receiving people and inviting them to come and see, we probably need to stop thinking about what's in it for me, what's in it for us. And start thinking about what am I doing for others. At the heart of the Christian gospel is not self-satisfaction. It's service to God and to others. So when you come to church, I want to suggest that one of the reasons you come to church is not for what's in it for you. But what do you have to offer to others? Did you know if you come with that attitude, you will find what's in it for you? When you serve others, that's the teaching of Jesus, you will find yourself. So as we arrive this Sunday morning or the next Sunday morning, let's ask that question. What can I do for others?
How can I reach out to the people who are around me? How can I identify the person who is lonely or has deep longings or needs healing? How can I serve that individual? And in serving, your heart will be served. We receive people in. We invite them to come and see. The second thing we do as a church in this place is we equip people who are willing to be a part of community. I'd like to call that come and learn. Receiving, come and see. Equipping, come and learn. Um, You know Jesus didn't sound like everybody else? He didn't sound like a non-religious person. But ironically, he didn't sound much like a religious person either, according to the typical standard of the day. He sounded different. He had a different message. And I want to suggest that if we're going to equip one another for service and equip those who come into our congregation, we have to embrace our difference. We have to embrace our uniqueness. To put it in a more critical way, some people don't embrace their difference. Some churches don't embrace their difference. They do everything they can to be relevant. And like everybody else. I experienced that too this summer. At a variety of churches. We have a different message. Just as Jesus had a different message. It's entirely different than the rest of the messages in our world. And we should not pretend like it's not different. It is. Our message is that God actually exists in three persons. Strange as it sounds, incomprehensible as it is, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you have any idea how profoundly different that is? It's absolutely unique. And thus we must come. Proclaim it. We also describe something different than the rest of the world as it relates to Jesus. You know, Jesus is a pretty popular figure today. Really is. Everybody loves Jesus. Not sure everybody understands who Jesus claimed to be, but everybody loves Jesus. Or at least what they believe Jesus to be. What is Absolutely different about the message of Jesus Christ and the church is that Jesus wasn't just a manifestation of God. He wasn't just a good person. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a person who loved humanity, although all those things were true. The fundamental distinction about Jesus is that he was God in the flesh. Really God. And really human. 
Both and. Somehow equally both. Embracing our reality. And in embracing our reality, dying a very human death for the sins of humanity in order that redemption could take place. Because it was God's way. And if it was God's way, the assumption is there was no other way. There's another thing that's different about our message. When we invite people to come and see and then come and learn. It's this, that we have a thorough, sinful human nature, that we are twisted inward, that we're not okay, that we absolutely need redemption. And the repentance is essential because self-redemption is impossible. So we cry out to this singular Son of God, Jesus, for our hope for redemption. And we acknowledge he's the only source of life, the only solution to the problem. Do you know how different that is? Let me use the dreaded word, exclusive. It's utterly unique. But we invite people in when we receive them and we ask them to come and see and then we say, we want to equip you and we want you to come and learn. That's what we're teaching. Among other things. Oh, by the way, some people do this in one context and others do it in a different context. And I want to suggest that, as I already have, the context of Antioch was different than other places and the context of Bloomington ECC is different than other places. So in this context, we have particular challenges, but we also see them as particular blessings. I hate these things. For anybody who's listening and not seeing, I'm holding up my glasses. Can't stand them. Every opportunity I have to take them off, I do so. I can see you perfectly well without them. I just can't see my notes, which might be better if I left them off. I hate my glasses, and there's, there's, but there's no way around them. But you know what is true of glasses? They, they give me a perspective, a different perspective than I had without them because right now the words are fuzzy and then all of a sudden they're clear. Oh, there's something else. I, I know I've shared this before, but I'm virtually colorblind. Um, not completely. I mean, I know the difference between red and blue. It's, it's the shade things that throw me off. So... In, in the fall, my wife will say, oh, see that beautiful red starting to bloom out there? And I say, no, I don't see it at all. It just kind of blends in with the green. It's, it's a sad reality, but it's, you know, one of my crosses to bear. And, and what I found, just fascinating, 
What I've found is that when I put on a pair of polarized sunglasses, which, by the way, is the only kind I will wear, everything changes. It's not as though I can see colors perfectly. It's that I, I literally see things I didn't see before. So I should ask Jason Gray to explain this to me. I don't understand why it happens, but it happens. I want to use that analogy as a way to understand the faith and life and its application. All of you come to this topic of faith in Jesus Christ with a different set of spectacles, okay? And unlike many churches, there's a whole lot of spectacles here. We're not really very uniform in terms of perspective. And here's what I want to suggest. We are blessed because of the diversity of perspectives. It's as though someone were to say to you, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I worship him and follow him with all my heart, but I want you to see him with my glasses. What are those glasses? <laughs> so many things. Part of our diversity, if I can call them glasses, are, are related to politics, political diversity. You know that, right? Do you see it as a bother? Or is the possibility for a deeper understanding of faith? Have you stopped long enough in the discourse about politics to ask whether or not someone who's on the other side of you might have a perspective that lends insight into the kingdom of God that you don't have? Okay, now that you're uncomfortable, let's move to a more comfortable topic. Denominational spectacles. It's another part of the beauty of this place. Um, you wouldn't know it from my background because I recovered from it, but um, my, my, my background was sort of fundamental Methodist. Dan's background is crazy Calvinist. I mean, Dan is over the top. John, John's background is some sort of fundamental Baptist. Adam's background is Nazarene. Who ever heard of a Nazarene? Anybody? Yeah, a few people. Kind of similar to where I grew up. It's absolutely delightful. We read books together every Thursday morning, um, the, the ministry staff, and, and analyze them. And every time we're challenged by a different perspective. You go to an ACG, and you're going to be challenged by a different perspective. If you just want to be a Baptist in this place, it'll be frustrating. If you just want to be a Presbyterian in this place, 
It's not going to be easy. If you just want to be a Methodist in this place, you're going to have trouble. But if you want to be a part of the body of Christ that is informed by all those traditions, you're going to be delighted. Because there's lots of perspectives on the faith. I use just one illustration that has been really quite transformative for me. Many years ago now, I was introduced to an organization called Renovari, which means renewal. And Renovari came out with a spiritual formation workbook for people if they were interested in the topic. And what the workbook is all about, it's experiencing a different Christian tradition in every week as a small group. So it's exploring the Reformed tradition and what it says about the Christian faith. It's exploring the social justice tradition and what it says about the Christian faith. It's exploring the holiness tradition and what it says about the Christian faith. It's exploring the Pentecostal tradition and what it says about the Christian faith. I, I was really transformed by that. By the way, all that happened before I arrived here. And when I saw the advertisement for this place, almost 21 years ago now, I thought, I think I could live there. There's remarkable diversity in this place, and it can be delightful. It doesn't need to be a threat. It's our way of understanding truth more deeply. The equipping that we are called to do as a church also involves building one another up, right? Not just teaching, but actually being in community and building one another up. There's, there's several images for the church in the New Testament, but a couple of them that are very interesting are household and body. And what you'll notice in both household and body is each thing's connected. Peter calls it a household of faith, and he says, built up with stones. Paul calls it a body, and he says, every part of the body is interconnected. All of us agreeing to help the other in order to grow. That's the body the household of faith. And in order to be that body, that spiritual house of living stones, we have to function with humility, patience, and we have to bear one another's burdens in love. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Why is it hard? Oh, it goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes to back to the fact that we're twisted inward and we're sinful and we're selfish. And we need to be reformed. And so in the context of broken community, we shape one another into the image of Christ. The third point in this um, description of our church is the word sending. There I've used two other words, come and go. There's a reality in which the church has always been about this. It's been about come here and then go out come here and be sent out. As a matter of fact, the church at Antioch, what's interesting about it among many, many other things, is that no single missionary journey by Paul did not include Antioch. 
He either passed through Antioch or he started in Antioch in all three of his missionary journeys. It was a hub of sending. This place has always been a hub of sending. We have a natural location because people come here from all over the country and all over the world. And we must integrate it into our, our strategy. We have a remarkable opportunity to invite people in, to equip them, and to send them out. Every year is a new birth of this experience. Every year people from all over the place converge in this place. And there's few times in life, you know this as well as I do, right? There's few times in life that are more critical for determining your future than the college years. Things like your morality, your sense of values, your career, frequently your marriage. I'm looking out and seeing a couple of you who came and found him or her right here. And your faith. All these things are at a critical juncture for so many people who arrive at our doors. And we have the opportunity to minister to them. We also have the opportunity to minister to people who come from all over the world. Even 20 years ago, this was an internationally diverse community. It's more so than it was before. There are more international students at IU than ever before. There's more international students in our town than ever before. And we have an opportunity to introduce, receive, equip, and send those people back out. One of these days, we're going to hear about a high-profile government official in another country that walked through these doors. I bet you it will happen. Because that's the kind of place this is. Future leaders from other countries, baptisms of believers who are sent out. One of the more moving experiences for me was baptizing a woman right here with only 12 people on the front row in the middle of the week. Why? Because she was afraid, and for good reason. But she wanted to make a commitment of faith. Where is she now? Not here. Back in her own country, which is probably 2% Christian. I can tell you one story after another of that kind of receiving, equipping, and sending. It's a wonderful opportunity to be part of this church. Missionaries are routinely sent out from this congregation. Dozens of ECC alumni are all over the world. We have a revolving population that's sent out every single year at the end of four years when they graduate. 
And to be a part of this place means that we meet fascinating people and sometimes get attached and then poof, they're gone. You've experienced that, right? And it's painful. It's hard to invest. It's difficult to figure out how when the time is so short. So how do you build community in a place like this? I'm not going to answer that. That's the topic for next week. Come and see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mission of this church, for the grace that you have given us to follow your call. And we pray that you will give us uh, insight into how to do it and give us hearts that are full of love and energy for others as we receive them, equip them, and send them out. In the name of Jesus, amen.